Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, I'm joined by Stacey Mitchell, the director of ILSR, as well as Ron Knox, who is a senior researcher with our independent business team. Uh, and this is your Building Local Power debut, right, Ron? It is. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the recent congressional hearing uh, that was held as part of the antitrust subcommittee's investigation into big tech, which has been going on for a year. Notably, this hearing featured testimony from the CEOs of Apple, Facebook, uh, Amazon, and Google. So a lot of money in one room. <laughs> and I think just for anyone who hasn't been paying very close attention over the last year, although I'm sure all of our listeners have been at least somewhat tuned in. Uh, Stacy, could you give us some key things that have happened leading up to this hearing? And if you've been involved at all, if ILSR has been involved, could you talk about that a little bit? So this is the first time in more than 40 years that Congress has conducted a detailed investigation of monopoly power. So it's it's a pretty remarkable thing that it's happening. And I think it's sort of hard for people, you know, because this hasn't happened in the lifetimes of most Americans to really conceptualize what this is or where it might where it might lead. Um, over the last year, the committee, uh, the staff of the committee has been conducting uh, this detailed investigation. They've demanded um, millions of pages of documents from the four companies, like internal documents with which they've been working through. They've interviewed a whole bunch of witnesses, like suppliers, competitors, like other market participants. Um, they've taken statements from over 100 companies. So they've been doing this really detailed work and uncovering a lot of, you know, a lot of evidence, as we saw from documents that they released as part of the hearing, of aggressive anti-competitive behavior, like basically spying, stealing, bullying, cheating, like all the things that we don't want big companies to be able to do um, and that we really haven't been policing. So part of this investigation is like, are the tech companies a problem? Do they have market power? Do they use it in ways that it's that's abusive? And then part of it's also about this question of like, well, where is antitrust policy? Like, why aren't these things being checked? You know, why isn't anything being done about them? Um, so that's sort of where we are. And and, you know, it's interesting to watch. I think we really saw in the hearing the that detailed investigation, the understanding of the business models in a lot of detail by members of the committee really paying off and paying off both in the quality of the questions and follow-ups that they were able to do, but also the fact that they are building a shared understanding. And I think some of them, you know, have even seen their views on these issues shift as a result of actually having to grapple with that evidence. Yeah. Um, could we talk a little bit more about how, as you said, we've just we've, America took a few decades off of enforcing any antitrust <laughs> policy. So is this like the beginning of maybe a shift back towards understanding how important that is and Congress understanding what they need to do there? Or is this kind of is this the result of action that's kind of been building before? Um, kind of where where is the public's perception at and Congress as well? 
I mean, I hope this is, you know, the death knell for multiple decades of really bad antitrust policy and antitrust enforcement, right? So basically, starting in the 1970s, a group of legal scholars, politicians, lawyers, other folks um, who believed that capital and the corporate power should really rule above all else, gained influence and eventually took power and changed the nature of our antitrust laws from those used to defend open markets uh, and a democratic economy to those used to uh, to defend and to permit corporate concentration and corporate bigness, right? And this was driven by the belief that bigger was better and that uh, and that big, powerful corporations were more efficient and delivered lower prices for consumers and were and were ultimately better for society. What that project actually did, you know, which one could argue was the true intent uh, of the project and of that change uh, in antitrust orthodoxy, was to concentrate wealth and power in the hands of a few dominant corporations and powerful people and strip that wealth and power away from workers, uh, away from independent small businesses, uh, and away from the public at large. And unfortunately, that's what happened. So you look at this hearing, this congressional hearing, and I think anyone that watched it really got the sense that that's over now and that this is Congress um, using, you know, the power of all of its tools, its investigatory tools, its the you know the kind of beating heart of the democracy uh, to change you know the pathway of our antitrust laws and antitrust enforcement and to say you know this is not going to fly anymore and this was the people really taking back power uh, in a substantial way. I think what was really interesting. I think that's totally right. And and you know this is this moment is a product of activism by ILSR and other organizations and, you know, sort of growing evidence that that ideology that took hold, you know, beginning in the 70s, by really by both Democrats and Republicans to a large extent, uh, that that is really a failed uh, theory of how uh, we build a prosperous economy. Um, you know, so this hearing is is both sort of a culmination of a lot of that realization and that activism to push monopoly issues back into the center of the conversation and a big turning point that then like lays the foundation, hopefully, for kind of a new stance. I think to like Ron's point about about sort of how the hearing possibly, we hope, kind of marked a, like a different sort of posture between Congress and corporations was that like, like quite literally in the hearing, the posture of the committee members to these four incredibly powerful wealthy CEOs was not one of deference. It had the feeling of like a legal deposition and as it had the feeling of a like of a courtesy, like we've done a year's worth of investigation. We have found a lot of evidence of wrongdoing. And as a courtesy to you, we're going to let you have an opportunity to answer for some of that evidence. But this is not about you doing a public relations event. This is not about grandstanding. This is actually about us exercising our responsibility and our authority as like the people's representatives over you, like nobody is above the law. And they demonstrated that in the tone, in the basic posture they took towards these four CEOs. And I thought just that part of the hearing uh, was really effective. Yeah, I know all the commentary that I read was like, wow, oh, they're asking real questions. We're really... (laughs) (laughs) The things I loved about the questions was... You know, they stuck, at least on the Democratic side or to some extent on the Republican side, um, they stuck very much to questions that were were about competition issues and monopoly issues. You could map all the questions very clearly to antitrust and competition issues. If you have expertise on that, you understood how those questions 
uh, map directly to the law. But at the same time, the phrasing of the questions and the language that they used, anyone could understand. And I thought that was really terrific. I mean, they really, you know, they talked about spying, stealing, cheating, you know, these were these were the kinds of terms and concepts that they brought up in their questions. And so, you know, for for the public, which, you know, has because antitrust has been not really operational and existing in the shadows, like most people don't feel they don't, you know, really understand it or know how to talk about it. And this committee like illustrated, here's what these concepts are about. Here's why they matter. And here's how they connect to, you know, everybody's lives and, and the well-being of our communities and, and our economy. Ron, there was something. No, I, well, I was just going to say, I mean, it seemed to me just, uh, you know, an outside observer that these extremely powerful, extremely wealthy men had were in no way, shape, or form like emotionally, spiritually prepared for what was about to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, you know, these I'm I'm sure these I'm sure these guys go about their lives um, in places of great power where nobody questions their actions. And they're entirely, uh, you know, insulated from any kind of criticism. And then they show up on the Hill with these extremely smart, well-prepared, organized lawmakers uh, who had done a full year investigation with a million documents or more ready to go. And uh, they just weren't ready to deal with that. I thought it was so. And, and there were moments in the hearing where you could see this kind, you know, where this, I think the shock of what was happening resulted in some on, some interesting honesty from some of the CEOs about what their about their actual business practices and what they actually did. I thought it was so eye-opening when Jeff Bezos um, said that Amazon's focus when acquiring businesses is the targeted company's position in the market, right? That admittance to me was, I mean, it undermined any claim that Amazon is driven by some idea of innovation or that it acquires companies because they'll complement Amazon's own offerings. The truth is that Amazon wants power. It wants market power. And it will get it by any means necessary, including through its mergers and acquisitions. And Bezos' testimony about the goal of its acquisition strategy really cemented that for me. And I thought that was such an interesting, he just admitted it. He just said it out loud. And I think it was because they have never faced this kind of critique before, never faced this kind of democratic power in their face before, like they did during the hearing. Yeah, I, I was imagining like a team of lawyers, like just off camera, you know, or standing behind their computer, you know, like shuffling papers around and yeah, like <laughs> holding up notes, like stop now. Yeah, yeah. Quit talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he did manage to get that feed shut off for like the first hour or so, right? I was, yeah. I, was jo I was joking online that he that he went outside and cut the cable to his house. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a good place to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we can start talking about our latest research into Amazon. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. If you enjoy listening to the show, we hope you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your support makes this podcast possible, and it allows us to produce the research and resources necessary to push back against concentrated corporate power. If you want to join us in returning power to local communities, please go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. So uh, one of the things that came up 
in the hearing was Congresswoman Scanlon mentioned our most recent report on Amazon, which you both worked on. Um, So could we dig into that a little bit? I mean, it's all about basically how Amazon is exploiting sellers on their platform. So you can talk about uh, kind of how that came up in the hearing um, and just how their dominance allows them to, to get away with doing that. So, I mean, Amazon's dominance uh, as an online retail platform allows the company to act as a gatekeeper for huge swaths of the economy uh, and uh, uh, and commerce in the U.S. So for most major product categories, more than 70% of online sales happen on Amazon. And when that's the case, Amazon has the ability to say who wins and who, you know, who loses, which products will be seen by Amazon's hundreds of millions of shoppers and which will not. So Amazon exploits this gatekeeper power by tying a small business's chance for success on its platform to that business's willingness to pay for all of these various Amazon taxes and fees. And so what we did with this report was we we showed, I think, really for the first time, um, the extent to which Amazon taxes, you know, this captured um, audience, this captured kind of group of companies that because of Amazon's monopoly, because of its dominance, are forced to sell on its platform. Yeah, we called the report Amazon's Monopoly Toll Booth. And in effect, that's what it is. You've got this company, and you know, and this is the language that Congressman Cicilline, who chairs the antitrust subcommittee and more than anyone is really responsible for this investigation, you know, he used this language of, you know, all of these companies have gatekeeper power. Basically, they have got a hold on a market. In order to reach that market, you have to go through them. And that enables them to extract, you know, from from the businesses that depend on that pipeline. And so in the case of Amazon, we found... Um, that five years ago, uh, Amazon was its fees that it charged sellers on its platform were were about 19%. So $19 out of every $100 that a seller earns. Uh, five years later today, those fees are now up to 30%. So $30 on every $100 they earn, like a big increase. And part of how they've done that is, you know, that their basic commission hasn't gone down even as they've gotten bigger. So that's stayed the same. And then they've layered these additional fees on top of it. And as Ron said, you know, these additional fees are are supposedly for like optional services, theoretically. But if you don't buy those services from Amazon, you're buried on page two, three, whatever of the results. You're not in a place where you're going to actually make sales. So they're technically optional, but not really. And, you know, this fee revenue, a lot of people talk about how Amazon Web Services, AWS, their big cloud operation is like Amazon's cash cow, right? Just to put it in perspective, AWS, and and I agree, it's certainly a cash cow. Last year, AWS took in $35 billion in revenue. From third-party sellers, Amazon took $60 billion in revenue. It's a huge and rapidly growing part of their revenue stream. And effectively, all that money that they're taking from sellers, they're using to fund their other businesses and to gain a sort of uncompetitive, unfair competitive advantage. They've used that in part to build this huge logistics operation, which we can talk more about. You know, they are now, they have a package delivery shipping service that rivals UPS and, and the postal service and is actually one of the big 
reasons that the Postal Service is in trouble right now. And they've used uh, this sort of squeeze on sellers to actually uh, fund a lot of their own retail operations. So basically, they're taking fees from sellers and then building products that compete directly with those sellers. So they win coming and going. Yeah, I think it's important to note, too, that it's not that you know, because they own all that infrastructure, it's not like these sellers can just say, oh, well, this isn't working for me. I'm going to go sell my products somewhere else online. If they really want to be successful, they have to buy into Amazon's whole game, right? That's right. And one thing that's really important about that is, you know, sellers will say, yeah, I'm also selling on other platforms. I'm on eBay. I'm on Walmart. I'm on my own site. But, you know, 90% of my business is coming through Amazon. And people might look at that and say, well, why don't you lower your prices on these other sites? Because they're, you know, you're not necessarily incurring all of these Amazon related fees and costs. Well, Amazon prevents them from doing that. If you have a lower price somewhere else, Amazon buries your product. Um, and so you suddenly lose all that business on Amazon. So effectively, you have to keep your prices high on other places. I mean, it's just so consumers ultimately are now paying the price, you know, as well as the independent sellers. I would love to talk more about the logistics, too. It just seems like a far sprawling monster to be that uh, keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, you know, just to put some numbers to it. I mean, I think what was really um, one of the revelations that, you know, that came to light in our report is, you know, to the extent to which Amazon funds um, its own operations on the backs of its small business third party sellers, right? So I think in terms of revenue, third party sales on Amazon makes up about half um, of, uh, of all sales on the Amazon platform. But the fees from those sales fund 75% of its logistics service. So not only are small businesses paying for their own you know, shipping and their own storage fees, but they're paying for Amazon to ship and store its own products to its customers. So Amazon um, uses its power. And, the, and and again, as you said, Jess, the sellers can't go anywhere else. Maybe they can go to eBay, but, but, but you know, but the customers aren't there. If it wants the customers, it has to be on this, you know, monopoly platform. And Amazon uses that, you know, that leverage. And again, that gatekeeper power um, to just extract fees, scrape off the top of every of every sale that happens um, on Amazon. And it's to the detriment of everybody. I mean, that's the thing that is so important about the, you know, the findings in this report. Um, it's obviously to the detriment of the small businesses that rely on Amazon that are forced to use its platform um, because of its market power. And a lot of the third party sellers that use the platform end up going out of business after two or three years because they can't afford it. They can't make a profit with those fees. Um, and it also, you know, puts pressure on these sellers to raise their prices. So the funniest thing is that Amazon says, oh, we're so great for consumers. We're just here to serve our customers. And but what's actually happening um, is that these third party sellers are forced to put their prices up and up and up because that's the only way they can make a profit while still paying all of these exorbitant fees. I think what's shocking about Amazon in the logistics sector is that they have become this massive player in just a few years. I mean, you know, it used to be that Amazon, you know, they've been building warehouses now for a while. So they've got a lot of warehouses and facilities for storing and packing products, but they relied on other carriers, you know, UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, 
third-party couriers to actually do the delivery. And then just a few years ago, they decided, you know what, we're going to bring all that in-house and we're going to start doing it ourselves through our own contracted service providers and so on. And they're now delivering half of uh, of the orders on Amazon in, you know, just in a matter of a few years, this huge explosion. And for the big, you know, the big, huge e-commerce parcel market, they now are on par with UPS and FedEx, basically, in terms of, of size, they've slightly overtaken the postal service. And part of what they've done is they have taken the least expensive routes. So they've taken like the urban routes, the profitable routes, um, away from the postal service and they've left the postal service with the really expensive like rural routes. Like if you live miles and miles from the highway and someone has to spend, you know, 15 minutes driving out to your house to make a delivery, that's the delivery that the postal service is doing. And meanwhile, Amazon is doing these uh, efficient urban deliveries. And so, you know, they learned how this business works by working closely with the postal service. And then once they understood it, they started doing it themselves and are now, um, basically gutting the postal service. Um, and and that, you know, is is sort of one more area where the consequences of their power are really playing out in ways that we're all gonna gonna pay for. The fact that they've done that they've gotten into the logistics sector so effectively and so quickly over the past few years, it just says that there's clearly no end point to where they want to grab power, like they're going to continue. They're never going to be say like, well, you know, we're making enough money, so we're not going to add any new services for our thing. You know, like we're good here. Um, it's clearly uh, without end. Yeah, you can just keep moving into adjacent markets, you know, one market after another. And, you know, the thing about the logistics is it sort of works both ways, like both, you know, Amazon has built this huge logistics operation by leveraging its power over these third party sellers and saying, oh, you can't use UPS, you've got to use us. Um, but it goes the other way in the sense that if, as they begin to dominate logistics, if they really dominate that industry and they become the only way that you can get a package to a consumer, say overnight or later the same day, then everybody's going to have to use their, their platform and their service if they want to be competitive in e-commerce. And so, you know, it just reinforces their market power all the way around. To go back to something you mentioned, Ron, uh, you said, and this was brought up in the hearing as well, they actually shared a video from a seller on Amazon's platform, that a lot of these businesses trying to sell on Amazon do go out of business within a few years. Um, so you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so in our report, we detailed the story of a company called Top Shelf Brands. And uh, this was a hair care products company uh, where the owner decided to sell some excess stock uh, online uh, rather than in his barbershop. And, uh, and it did really well. And eventually he turned to Amazon. And when he turned to Amazon, his business really took off and had a ton of sales. And in just a few years became quite a big operation, went from just being a, you know, a barber shop to a company that employed 45 employees and so on. And everything was going great. And he was um, uh, uh, and the owner of the shop was a big proponent of Amazon and would, and would tell everybody how great Amazon was. That is until Amazon's fees really started adding up. Uh, so, um, you know, we quickly realized that if he wanted to be successful on Amazon, he had to use uh, what's called FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon. And that's Amazon's warehousing and shipping service. Then he realized that 
oh, you know, actually to be really successful on Amazon, I, I'm going to have to buy some, some, some place product advertising to make sure that these products are at the top of the search results page and at the top of the products landing pages they go to. So suddenly you have to pay a little more and pay a little more. So uh, in 2014, Amazon fees were 35% of this company's revenue. By 2018, four years later, its cut was 46%, right? And anyone that's in business knows that that difference is, is a company's entire margin. That's, a, that's an entire profit margin, right? And, you know, it got to the point where, where between Amazon fees and the cost of its supplies, only 13% of its revenue was left to cover payroll and the rest of its expenses. So because of these fees, and this is, and this is not just additional fees. This isn't like advertising. These are fees going up. This is storage fees going up and so on. So suddenly by 2018, this extraordinarily successful company that went out and hired a bunch of people and was having all this great success on Amazon um, was losing money. And it was losing money because of these fees. And again, this is, and, you know, and, and so now this company is, you know, teetering on the brink. Um, and it's one example, but, but this kind of thing is happening across the Amazon ecosystem. It's happening to small businesses everywhere. And, and again, why don't they go somewhere else? Why don't they go to eBay? Why don't they sell on their own site? 90% of this company's revenue comes from Amazon. And it doesn't because there's because that's what the monopoly does, right? It has that captured audience um, of buyers and there's and there's just there's no way out of it. So again, that's just, you know, one example, but but uh, but that's prevalent around the site. You hear that from a lot of small businesses. <clears throat> yeah, Stacy, you called them uh, a private government, I think, in your recent piece for the Atlantic. So given just how much they control these platforms, how much they control the infrastructure, do you feel like the antitrust laws that we already have on the books are capable of regulating Amazon? Or do we need additional laws to um, regulate modern monopolies like this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I described Amazon as a form of private government. And that was a theme that also came up in the hearing. Um, and I think there's sort of growing consensus that we should recognize these big tech companies in that way. You know, in the case of Amazon, it's basically deciding the rules of the market, who can participate on what terms. I mean, it, it's running how commerce works. Um, and that really is a function that should be in the hands of a democratic government, right? And not in the hands of Amazon. So, um, you know, how do we address this? On the one hand, our antitrust laws are very strong. And I think in theory, if you look at the laws as they are written and as they were originally designed, they are strong enough to address the problems of the tech platforms. That said, the case law, like the court decisions that have been made around the laws for the last 30 or 40 years in response to this ideological shift that that Ron described have basically taken the law so far off track that it becomes very hard to figure out how do you build a case that actually can take on these companies given the kind of hurdles and obstacles that the courts have set up. Um, you know, not things that are in the original law, but ways that the courts have said, well, in order to prove this kind of case, you have to do X, Y, and Z, um, things that they the courts have layered on. And so our feeling is that, yes, there are, there are definitely antitrust cases that the agencies need to bring. And in fact, 
you know, there are uh, uh, AGs, state AGs in California and New York that are reportedly investigating Amazon for antitrust abuses. Um, there may be an investigation underway in the FTC. So there is some movement in that direction. And there are these specific kinds of violations of the law that I think surfaced in the hearing and that uh, you could build a case around. Um, but that said, I think that the more expedient and more effective approach to this would be if Congress passed some new legislation and specifically said that, like, if you are a dominant platform, if you operate, say, a big marketplace, then you can't also be a competitor on that marketplace. Like, basically, you know, Amazon needs to spin off into multiple companies and that the that the platform, the kind of you know gate that everyone has to travel through, needs to be subject to kind of like a public utility sort of standard, some, a set of rules to basically say if you operate this really important platform that everyone has to use, you have public interest obligations and you have an obligation to treat people fairly and and uh, you know sort of consistently, right? Um, so those are kind of the two pieces of it, and it could happen through Congress passing a law that that basically said if you meet these conditions, then you uh, need to break yourself up and you have a certain amount of time to do that. It could also happen by Congress saying to the FTC, which has rulemaking power, the Federal Trade Commission, um, you need to make rules about this. You need to make a rule that achieves this. And so basically set the goal and kick it over to them to do it. I would also say, and, and you know, I, I should say, you know, you asked earlier about our involvement with the antitrust committee, a subcommittee in the House in this investigation. And so, you know, we've had a fair amount of involvement. I testified before the committee last July, um, you know, a year ago uh, about Amazon. And then we've submitted various comment letters, including in May, I believe it was, or earlier this year anyway, a set of recommendations around antitrust policy reform that are recommendations that we hope they incorporate into their report, which is going to be out in a few weeks. And in addition to that kind of separation of platforms, we also recommended that Congress clarify the purpose of antitrust laws and you know clarify um, that if you're a dominant company, you can't you know just engage in predatory pricing or tying or some of these kinds of behaviors um, that the courts have made really hard to prove. Like basically for Congress to step in and say, you know what, the courts have gotten our intentions wrong and we're just going to restate what those intentions are so that we bring the law back into what was originally conceived. Ron, anything you want to add there? <laughs> I, I don't want to get too into the weeds on this, but, you know, but I will just say that, uh, as Stacy mentioned, I mean, I think things like predatory pricing are such, you know, that's the core of really the kinds of the kinds of conduct that the antitrust laws were intended to prevent. And the fact that now, because of this 40 plus years of really pro-monopoly antitrust, both enforcement and jurisprudence, you end up where um, it is nearly impossible to prove that a dominant company uh, used a predatory pricing tactic to force one of its rivals out of business. And the fact that we've gotten to, you know, to this point uh, is, you know, is disturbing enough. But to Stacy's point, there's likely no way through the courts to remedy this. This is something that Congress has to take up. And it has to reassert their power over the antitrust laws, you know, both in their intent, their legislative intent, and over how they're enforced. That's that's a power that Congress has, and uh, it's 
it's part of what was so remarkable and heartening um, to watch this hearing and to understand this investigation that the subcommittee has been has been doing for the last year um, is because it's really a sign that Congress is ready and willing and able to take back this power and to reassert its authority over how um, antitrust happens in America. Yeah, my my closing question is um, basically, what can we expect next? Um, we'll have the report from the subcommittee in September. Um, and then what if if Congress is retaking this power? What, what should we look for next? Well, I'm really, you know, I think what the report says is really important. And we're certainly, you know, we've uh, been doing meetings with the offices of the uh, of the members of the committee this week and next week. Um, so we really are hoping for a strong report that lays out the evidence that we got a glimpse of in the hearing and lays it all out. And then also offers some strong recommendations about what needs to happen. Because I feel like this report is going to set the stage for, you know, the framework for what could then happen next. So that'll come out, they say, late August, early September, something like that. And then obviously, we're going to go into an election. And so everything is going to be a little bit suspended. I mean, what's in the report will, I think, help to feed and drive some of the investigations by the state AGs and maybe by the FTC. So that's going to, you know, that's going to happen regardless. And then in terms of politically, I'm hoping that we'll come back in January, you know, there'll be a new Congress one way or another. And I hope that report has then set the stage for actual legislation to be introduced. And we are certainly going to be working really hard to make that legislation happen. Um, any last thoughts from either of you? Well, I think it's fun uh, to, to actually, the hearing was like five hours long or like five and a half hours yeah. <laughs> long. So, you know, we all watched it with like popcorn and Twitter and all of that, you know, uh, during the day it was happening. But, you know, for listeners, you can, you know, you can pull it up and it's really, I think it's great just to watch like David Cicilline, who chairs the committee, his opening statement. Um, I think really gives you a sense of how this committee is framing these issues. And I found it quite um, quite powerful. And then the other thing I would just say in closing, I think it's, you know, it's easy to get, um, you know, tech sort of seems like, a, you know, uh, not concrete kind of ephemeral and, you know, antitrust policy seems really removed. But one of the things I thought was quite powerful about the hearing is that the the questions that the committee asked repeatedly just grounded it in how this actually affects us like how this is affecting small businesses, how this is affecting the economy, squelching innovation, you know. So these things are, you know, affecting all of our lives and in really uh, profound ways. And so I thought the committee did a great job with that too. And you can really see that, you know, in some of those questions and in that opening statement. So I just encourage people to like dip in and watch like what your government looks like when it's actually doing its job. <laughs> it's refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Appreciate Jess. It. Fun to talk to you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. You can also help us out with the gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research we make available for free on our website. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Zach Freed and me, Jess Delfiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. 
For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.